0: I mean, some people go into the ministry, uh, whatever kind of ministry, vocational or otherwise, and they have, maybe it's unspoken, but this mindset of, well, what's in it for me? You know what I mean? It's kind of like, well, if I do this, then there will be this. You see that? It's very subtle, too. Uh, And it it comes down to, uh, you know, am I ministering because I want to minister to the body, or am I ministering because I want to see something happen either for me or as a result of me? And that's a subtle form of pride if you think about it. Uh, it really is hard to tell if your motive's on that sometimes, I think. Uh, but when a little pressure comes into the situation, there's change. If there's some criticism of your ministry or th- something like that, you, you'll find that you you can identify this in yourself by thinking things like, well, I don't have to put up with that. <laughs> I don't have to do that. Uh, nobody appreciates me or, you know, I don't have the time for this. This is not a priority. Uh our heart really should be uh, more other-centric like Christ's ministry was, right? I mean, we really should be about serving one another. Our heart should be like, if you think of the Old Testament, Joel writes about how the priest was to weep between the porch and the altar with a deep concern for God's people. And that's really where we're, we're going to be motivated from, and we'll see this in our passage. Uh, the reason we do the other is because it's a felt-need kind of ministry that's been in the the pipeline for so long, we really think, well, what is it for me? And that's really, the, 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 uh, that's ground zero, the selfish perspective that often messes up our Christian ministry. Uh, there's another p- popular misconception that has to do with why we do it, and this is closely related. Some people do it for recognition. Some people do it as a duty only, you know, like I'm supposed to do this. Everybody else is doing it. What if I'm not doing anything? What will people say? Uh, And the real mindset there is that we should be as bondservants of God who have been bought with a price out of gratitude for what he's done in our lives that we want to serve him and want to see his gospel furthered in the lives of others. There's a misconception about what ministry is all about. Some people will say, well, it's only about evangelism, right? It's only about soul winning. Some people say, no, no, it's not about that. It's only about discipleship, taking those, and, and so people will gravitate Exclusively to one or the other. Now you're going to have a bent, and I'm going to have a bent more towards one or the other, and that's okay. But if you say basically discipleship ministry is the only thing valuable, or evangelism ministry is the only thing valuable, you're missing the boat because the two have to go together. You see what I'm saying? So sometimes we can gravitate towards uh, certain aspects of ministry and make that the main thing to uh, uh, the detriment of other things. Some people do this in a real negative sense, in the idea of It's about my feelings. If I don't have goosebumps in the message today, that wasn't a good sermon, you know, or during the music or something like that. You know what I'm talking about? It's not about that kind of stuff. God's not in it if I didn't get goosebumps today. You think that was the way it was with Jeremiah, the weeping prophet? No, no. We are commanded to go and make disciples, to win them not abandon them, to to pour our lives into them, and to be about the work of the gospel when it feels awesome, (laughs) and it does sometimes, right? And when it's hard. And it's like that sometimes, right? There's a misconception about what the content of ministry is as well. Uh, People seem to be more concerned with peripheral matters than primary matters. Churches divide over, very rarely over doctrine. Usually it's over music styles or carpet colors or hurt feelings or something like that. Uh, And during those times, what you'll find often is they minimize the time that is spent in the deep, fertile study of God's word. Often churches, because of this, will discard time in the word to make room for 12-step groups and mutual admiration societies. And if you look at most churches today, the highest attended events usually have something to do with high. they're high on fun and food and low on word. And that's a shame. And it's this, uh, this, this kind of Pavlov's dog kind of effect we've had where we almost present it like that. We're going to have time in the Word, and then we're going to have fun. Right? Track with me on this, okay? Time in the Word is fun. That would have been a great place for an amen. Let's try that again. Here, we'll, you, you can edit this for the, for the website, right? Time in the Word is fun. Amen. Oh, yeah, you guys got it. That's right. No, it is, it is. When I come to the word of God, I find there a richness that impacts my very soul at the, the, the most foundational elements, right? There is something where I'm encountering an almighty God with, from his word spoken to my heart, applied by his spirit that shows me for who I am, that sometimes hurts me. It shows me what's wrong. It shows me what's right. It shows me how to make the wrong right. And it shows me how to keep the right, right? Right? That's Romans 12, 1 and 2. The Bible says, preach the word. That's what the content ought to be. We are to declare the whole counsel of God, right? Acts 20, 27 says. So we need to never have misconceptions about what content should be. There's also another misconception. as to where the power comes from. I got to kind of grit my teeth and do this thing. You know, Uh, one school operates solely on song power i have to do it all and that leads to ministerial burnout and people getting burned out in the different little things that are going on and and those are phrases that really shouldn't be in our our vocabulary and that's a result of not doing under god's power right and we that mindset tends to think well hey what's the attendance today the attendance was 120 and it should last week it was 110 we're doing great or last week was 130 oh no we're falling apart what's going on and, and, and get so much pressure on that. Uh, and we think the results are up to us, and it's not up to us. God is the one who builds his church, amen? God is the one who, who brings things together. God is the one who opens a person's eyes and their heart so they can understand. Our calling is to be about prayer and the word, right? Just like the elders, right? That doesn't mean that they were not serving the Hellenistic Jews. We're not doing these other ministries. Those are important ministries as well. But the reality of this is they are word-based. We do that because of what the word tells us, that we are to care for one another, show concern for one another, and put their interests higher than our own. Philippians 2. The other school goes the opposite extreme, They don't even study their Bibles, relying only on the Holy Spirit to reveal them everything they'll need to know when it is needed. By the way, the Holy Spirit has revealed to you things in the Word, so don't make a Holy Spirit in your own design, right? What that happens when you throw the Word out and go by your goosebumps, then you end up with a a lot of problems and and there's a a resulting uh, bizarre perversions of ministries that are entirely inconsistent with the Word of God. And it does much to discredit the Holy Spirit's name before the watching world. Folks, here's what we need. We need biblically-based ministries for a world that is spiritually dying around us. For ourselves, as we struggle through this world that has fallen and broken apart we need biblically based ministries so that our people can worship god more fully behave in a manner worthy of our lord and grow in wisdom and stature and knowledge and good deeds you know it takes effort doesn't it to open up the word of god and to see how he says we should be ministering rather than ministering how we feel like we should be ministering or ministering in the way somebody in the world says or somebody wrote a book and that's how we're supposed to do it the best thing we can do is go to the Word of God and say, Okay, God, what do you think? How should I be ministering? And that's what we're going to do today in Colossians chapter 1. So open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Colossians chapter 1. And you'll remember the context of Colossians leading up to this point is Paul has been talking about a Christology, right? Who Christ is and how he is supreme, how he is preeminent in everything. He's preeminent in creation. He's the head of the church. He's preeminent in the church. He's preeminent in the work of reconciliation and salvation. We've seen that all through here up to this point. And what happens now is we direct our attention in verses 24 through 29 to Jesus Christ's supreme ministry. That is, the the biblical pattern for what ministry looks like. And it's a pattern that he has exhibited and and bore for us to look at, all right? And it is the charge that our Lord also gives us as well. You remember in John 13, uh, he says to his disciples, I've set an example that you should do as I've done. And in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, it says there that God uh, gave us Christ, and Christ left, left us an example that we should follow in his steps. Okay, so there's the picture, okay? And what we're going to look at in our text is we're going to see four traits of Christian ministry, according to the Bible, so that we can put aside our current misconceptions about ministry and minister in a manner that is pleasing to our Lord. Now, the topic of ministry is near and dear, as you can imagine, to the Apostle Paul's heart. Uh, he's often had to uh, defend his own ministry uh, due to attacks on his authority. But Paul was a guy who was like Jeremiah, who who spoke the word of God like it was a, a burning fire in his bones, right? And he was compelled to carry out his ministry. In 1 Corinthians 9.16, Paul writes these words he says woe to me if I do not preach the gospel for I am under compulsion I mean that's pretty strong right and in this section of Colossians there's much value to all believers who are called to minister in various occupations all of them by the way holy all done Colossians 3 23 is going to tell us as unto the Lord right we're in different places and different jobs and all that kind of stuff. But we have a holy occupation in every one of them because we're working as unto the Lord. And in those opportunities, we have great uh, opportunity, again, to, to minister on behalf of, the, of, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and here in the body, as we minister in the body, and every believer, by the way, should be ministering in this body, Right? We all have gifts that have been given by the Holy Spirit that are meant to go together into this body that is called cornerstone, right? So everybody's got a, everybody who's in Christ has a spiritual gift. everybody in this body ought to be ministering within this body too. okay? If you're not ministering within this body, this is not the guilt trip time of the message. okay? what I'm saying is, hey, check it out. God gave you a, you're missing out on a great opportunity here because the Holy Spirit's gifted you to have a ministry in this body. Find it, uh, help your with your elders. Figure that out and start to use it. And watch the body come together as all the parts are working in unison with the head leading the way uh, to minister for the kingdom of God. And there are so many ways to minister. So let's read our passage. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I may fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known, speaking of the saints there. What is the riches of this glory, of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory? We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which works mightily within me. Now, you'll see your outline in the bulletin, and, and we've got these four aspects of Christian ministry. The first one is this disposition. That's your blank, disposition of ministry. And that is about the attitude. What's the attitude of the one who is ministering? Look at verse 24. Check out Paul's attitude. He says, hey, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Now, what's Paul's attitude there? Paul's attitude there is joy, right? He's rejoicing. Okay, he's got this attitude of joy, but this attitude of joy is—is is it a picture of it's a perfect situation? What does it say there? I rejoice in my what? Sufferings, right? So he's got joy in suffering. Now, Paul, at this point, you'll remember from our introduction, he is in a Roman jail. <laughs> All right, uh, how many of you are in jail? Oh, I knew the answer to that before I asked it. Because you're in here. You're not in jail. Because when you're in jail, you don't get to come here, right? Typically. All right? So he's in jail. And by the way, it's not our jail with cable TV and weight rooms and stuff like that. He's in a dark, dank jail, right? With uh, mold growing everywhere. In chains. Not being able to move around. And in that, his attitude. We live in relative comfort. And sometimes it's hard for us to stop complaining, right? This is a theme that goes all through Scripture. Romans 5, verse 3 speaks of exulting in tribulation. 1 Peter four thirteen says, to suffer and rejoice. Acts five forty one, you find the apostles there rejoicing after they've been beaten and all this kind of stuff and wrongly imprisoned because they've been counted worthy to join in the suffering. We are called. To rejoice in suffering. Paul certainly did it. And, and you, if you read that kind of stuff, and if you're like most people, and I, I, we all struggle with this, how, Paul, do you do that? Right? I mean, how do, you, how do you just have joy? I don't want to just be like the, you know, the manufactured joy. You know what I'm talking about? I'm suffering, but I love you, Lord. I'm putting on a show. As soon as somebody leaves the room, man, it's like, oh, Lord, what's going on, you know? Now, David, I'm not saying we don't have those times, but, you know, David, if you read through the Psalms, David's going, oh, Lord, why so downcast, oh, my soul, right? And then he says what? Put your hope in God. It's a perspective change, okay? And that's really where Colossians is leading with all this. And what I, what I submit to you is Paul could rejoice in these difficult circumstances because of his perspective, all right? And, and his perspective was a eschatological view of his life it was not a view merely of my life here is all that matters and so that's the thing if it's going bad I feel bad but he's going hey I'm in the, there's a big scope of things that God is up to and he is on his throne and he is good and he is sovereign and he is working all these things together for good and so I can look at my situation and see these tough circumstances that surround me and know that God is using that even to do certain things and because of that I can rejoice what were these things that he could do well, he understood, I'd submit to you at least five things, okay? Number one, he understood that, that suffering matures us as believers. Now, how many of you would like to be more mature Christians? Go ahead, raise your hands. All right, we all like to. My hand's up too, right? What if the path of that meant suffering? How many of you would like to be more mature as believers? Well, very, I know, it took a longer. I appreciate that because you're being honest and you're not wanting to lie in church. Thank you for that. But the reality is suffering is one of the pathways God uses to make us more Christ-like. Have you ever noticed anything about Christ's life? He suffered. Now, he wasn't being perfected or matured, right? He was laying down a pattern as we've talked about. But he's showing us, hey, I'm going down this path don't be afraid because for the joy set before me, I'll endure the suffering. For the joy set before you, you endure the suffering. Philippians 3.10, Paul cries out. He says, I just want to know him. Yeah, right? I just want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Is this good with you so far? I want to know Christ. How many just amen that? Amen. I, I want to know the power of his resurrection. How cool is that going to be? Yes. And I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Crickets. right? Uh, uh, you know, two out of three ain't bad, right? I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. And he says, in that position, being conformed to his death. Because what's happening there is we are being, ch- the, the rough edges of the marble of the statue that is us reflecting Christ is being chipped away so that we may look more like his image. So we may look more like him. What happens when we suffer and we suffer biblically is it matures us as believers. So Paul can look at this and say, I'm suffering. God's working on me and he's maturing me. How cool is that? I can, I'm, I'm, I can have joy in that. Number two, he can rejoice because he understands that suffering not only matures the believer, but it assures the believer, all right? It assures us of our relationship with Christ. John fifteen eight. Jesus says these words. He says, Hey, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. What's he saying? Well, it's not just thanks for that information, Jesus. I appreciate that statement. He's saying, Don't you understand that that identifies you with me? In 2 Timothy 3 12, Paul writes this Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So, So what happens is when you're persecuted for the sake of righteousness, rejoice, the Beatitudes, right? Sermon on the Mount. Because it's identifying you with the prophets who went before you. It's identifying you with, in our case, a, a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's showing the reality that, God, that you have a relationship with Christ. And it assure, assures us of that. That's pretty good. Everybody wants assurance, assurance of salvation, right? Here you go. Rejoice. Rejoice that it matures you. Rejoice that it assures you. Rejoice that, here's number three, it produces a future reward. This is cool too, right? That's Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. He says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Did you hear that? Momentary light affliction. You say, mine's not momentary, mine's not light. Can I just submit to you it is momentary? Remember the line on the wall? And it is light in the scope of things compared to the eternal weight of glory momentary light affliction is producing for you an eternal weight of glory it's producing for you future reward number 4 another reason why suffering is cause for joy is it can result in the salvation of others now track with me on this because we see this patterned out in the book of acts don't we we see the church being inundated with persecution and what happens the church disperses and these are think about this We don't tend to think of these things in real life. We tend to think of them as Bible stories, don't we? And think about what happened when persecution came on that church at Jerusalem. And those people who were Jews in their land now ended up having to disperse, leaving behind uh, familiar places, familiar uh, ways of making a living situations, where do I even shop, you know, do I, I know my language here, all these kind of things, and they go from there out into other parts of the world. Well, you think that was hard? Absolutely, that had to be terribly hard, didn't it? Wasn't it? But God was working, right? Because as he planted this believer in Turkey, or he planted this believer in Greece, he also put there a witness for Jesus Christ. Right, He put somebody there who could tell others about what God had done and wh- how they could be saved from their sins, how they could be redeemed. And as that church that you see in Acts is beaten down upon and, and s- spread out, we find more and more people coming to the Lord. Even there in Jerusalem, it says, hey, you remember after Ananias and Sapphira, all that kind of stuff, and then you, persecution came, and what was said over and over again there in the beginning, and many were being added to their number." Because people saw a a reality, a hope, they saw joy and suffering. I submit to you as well. So it can result in the salvation of others. By the way, church history is loaded with these kind of accounts as well. And what you'll find time and time again is when persecution came, the church swelled. Number five, matures the believer, assures the believer, produces future reward, and can result in the salvation of others. And now number five, it frustrates Satan. He wants to harm us. He wants to distract us. But God, how frustrating it is when you think you're putting your best effort on to distract a believer and God takes that and he uses it for God. How frustrating do you think that is to old Satan? So there's much to rejoice about even in the midst of suffering. John MacArthur writes this. He says, As challenging and demanding as it is, ministry was never intended to be an arduous and unbearable burden. Paul's attitude of joy should be the spirit of ministry for every Christian. The sad reality is, however, that many Christians, even some pastors, have lost the joy of serving the Lord. They grudgingly carry out their responsibilities with solemn faces and somber spirits. Like Jonah, they are hesitant, angry, bitter, and resentful. They are reminiscent of Elijah, who requested for himself that he may die, and said, it's enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I'm not any better than my fathers. A Christian who has lost the joy of ministry doesn't have bad circumstances. He has bad connections. He's lost his focus. You don't lose the joy of serving Christ unless your communion with him breaks down. Christian joy is internal, right? And Paul had many bad circumstances, but never without joy. He kept his focus, again, vertically, not horizontally. Paul wasn't asking, what am I going to get out of this? prison chains, you know. No, he wasn't asking that. He was asking this. And this is a much better question than what do I get out of it. How much will God let me put into it? You see? How much can I invest in this? How much treasure can I lay up in heaven, right? Now, what is Paul talking about here in our passage when he says he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? And this is highly debated, all right? And there's volumes and volumes of books that have been written on this, what he, let me give you the Cliff's notes on this, okay? What he's certainly not talking about is that you're adding something to the atonement, right? That you're completing the salvation atonement that you've received in Christ. He's absolutely not talking about that. We know that in no uncertain terms because, number one, Christ is sufficient for the work of salvation. He's just talked about that in the previous verses, right? To take this view would be to contradict the whole of Scripture. It is finished means just that. It's finished. You don't have to be adding to it, Okay? By the way, the Greek word here that's used for afflictions here is never, ever used in reference to Christ's saving and atoning work. So in what sense here is Paul's sufferings filling up what was lacking in Christ's affliction? Well, here's the deal. What Paul was looking at is he was looking at it, and in his persecution, he saw that he was receiving blows intended for Christ, intended to detour the work of Christ. All right, you follow me? So he's looking at this and saying, this is filling up what is lacking, and that his affliction isn't finished. It's not that his affliction in the atonement sense was not good. The affliction that are coming towards the church is not finished and it will not be finished until the new heavens, new earth, right? Until Christ comes and writes all of that. So there's still affliction that is coming and it's not finished. And what Paul would do, and this is part of the joy thing again, is he looks and he says, This affliction is coming to me because I am identified with Christ. Remember the assurance issue? And because of that, he could have joy and see that it was still part of, I was on God's plan. I was going the right direction. I mean, do you think Satan would give a hoot? Satan is not omnipresent. You know this, right? A lot of people say, well, Satan just, uh, he took away that parking place I was going to have and ruined my joy today. He, he would not give a hoot about you apart from Christ. You're insignificant. I'm insignificant apart from Christ to Satan. It's not all about me. It's not all about you. That's something we need to learn, right? Sufferings, these sufferings are those that are the hostile world imposed first on Christ and now they continue to inflict these things upon those who identify with him. Does it surprise you that the world would want a Christian to suffer? Jesus said it would happen. John 15, verse 20, if they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. Jesus recognized that suffering inflicted on believers was on him. Also, if you remember Paul's a Damascus Road account, right? What did he say to Saul? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me. Who was he persecuting? These believers, right? But it was Christ who he was really persecuting. I mean, think about for just a moment here the last instance that you suffered in ministry. Perhaps somebody treated you in a not-so-nice way, criticizing your efforts, ignoring your hard work, Maybe you felt underappreciated or unappreciated in some way. Maybe it just was so much work and you got discouraged. Now, think about this for a second. What was your response? Was it joy? I mean, did you rejoice in those times? And if not, why not? It matures you. All right? You're becoming more Christ-like through it. Rejoice. It assures you you're identified with Christ. Rejoice. It produces a future reward. Who doesn't want that? Rejoice. It can lead to a changed life of somebody else as they see you go through that well. Rejoice. It furthers the kingdom of God and frustrates Satan. How cool is that? Let's rejoice. When, and I speak to myself as much as I speak to you, when I don't rejoice in those situations, it is because my view is horizontal. It is because I've forgotten that God does the work, that God is the one who rewards, and God is the one who punishes. We need to take our cue from the apostle here in all our ministries and keep the right perspective. Biblical ministry is to be done with an attitude of joy, even in the midst of suffering and sacrifice. That's the first aspect of Christian ministry. And two questions that you might want to be thinking through here is, number one, are you ministering right now? The answer to that should be yes. Yes. If it's not, that's cool. Thank the Lord for making you aware of that. And now think, okay, how can I be ministering? So the first question is, are you ministering? And the second question is, does it look like this? Even when there's suffering and hardship and sacrifice, is there joy? Let's look at the second aspect of Christian ministry that we want to notice This is the duty of ministry. We looked at the disposition of ministry, now it's the duty of ministry. That's the charge that we've been given, any of us who are ministering, right? Look at verses 25 through 27. Paul says, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I may fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations but has now been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make it known what is the riches of of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, notice what it says there at the beginning of verse 25. Paul says he was made a minister. Uh, This, by the way, wasn't his plan for his life. I hope you remember that right. Uh, His plan was to be in the upper echelons of Judaism. That was his goal. He was zealous, zealous, zealous about that goal. I mean, if you read Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6... He's writing about it. He's saying, hey, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews as to the law. I was a Pharisee as to zeal. I was a persecutor of the church as to righteousness, which is in the law. I was found blameless. I mean, I was going down that path in Acts chapter 22 when he's giving his testimony. He says, hey, I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. I was brought up in this city, that being Jerusalem. I was educated under Gamaliel, strictly under the law of our fathers. And you know what? I was being zealous for our God. And in Galatians 1.14, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen being extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. I mean, he is a fired-up, type-A, zealous, mover-shaker kind of guy. And his path was in the path of false religion, right? A works-based religion. And that zeal led him to become a persecutor of the church. So when Stephen is getting stoned, outside of the gate, right? Who's there? Saul is there. Paul is there. And, and they're laying his, their, clo- their cloaks at his feet. And he's giving hearty approval. Go get them, boys. Right? And then he progresses soon from the clo- cloak cloakroom to the front lines. And he's going around and he's persecuting. And he's, he's getting every Christian he can find in Jerusalem and putting them in prison. So much so that he runs out of people to find in Jerusalem and he goes and gets orders that he can go to Damascus, right, and find some more in Syria. So he's zealous. He's fired up about this, okay? And his plan was that. And on that road to Damascus, that was his plan. And before that light shone, and before that voice came, that was his plan. And then Jesus steps and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? There's another plan now. And he changes him, and he redeems him, and he makes him into a new creature. He goes from Saul to Paul. And, and his response there, after he sees the light, after he hears the voice, his response there, you'll find he says in Acts chapter 22, I believe, he says, hey, what shall I do, Lord? What, what do you want? Because it wasn't him anymore. Now, by the way, he was, and our personalities stay fairly intact in this process. I think you understand that, right? He was a zealous guy before. He's a zealous guy afterward. But it's a good zeal now. He is so fired up, he'll go to the end of the earth to make somebody a Christian instead of arrest somebody for being a Christian now. He didn't volunteer. He was made a minister by Jesus Christ himself. Paul often stressed that God chose him. And that's true of you too and of me who are in Christ. We've been chosen by God. We have been set aside, elected for a purpose. We have been predestined. The Bible uses all these terms. We've been called to serve God in some capacity or another, and we all have our stewardship. And that's the word the Bible uses over and over again, including our passage today. The Greek word here, stewardship, that translates stewardship is oikonomia. It's a compound word. comes from oikia, which is house, and namas, which is manage. So the house manager. In other words, you've been given, a, given something precious and you're supposed to do something with it and take care of it. it. It was a position, the steward was a position of great trust and responsibility. And as such, as Christians who've been given a stewardship of ministry, we will give an account one day of our stewardship to Christ, right? And Paul's charge here began with one simple direction. And that was the idea of, hey, it needs to begin with the word of God. Paul's charge was to preach the word, right? And that's the content which he refers to in verses 26 and 27 here. He says, The mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints. What exactly is the mystery the Bible refers to so often? Well, a mystery, uh, you understand, scripturally speaking, mysteries aren't like whodunits, right? Ghosts and goblins, you know, Scooby-Doo, you know, that kind of stuff, right? A mystery is, is not that. It's a revealed secret. It, it's a truth that was not formally known and understood to man, but now has been revealed to God, to his people. Revealed by God to his people. And there's lots of mysteries in the Bible. There's a mystery of the incarnate God that we see in chapter 2 of Colossians. There's a mystery of Israel's unbelief in Romans 11. There's a mystery of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians 2. There's a mystery of the unity of the Jew and Gentile into the church in Ephesians 3. There's a mystery of the rapture of the church in, 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 in 1 Corinthians 15. And here the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory, The, 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 the indwelling Christ. The Old Testament did reveal that a Messiah was coming and that Gentiles would partake in salvation. By the way, I hope you understand that. This is not something new that Gentiles are going to be involved, right? And there are multiple scriptures in the Old Testament talking about this. All right? Isaiah 42, 45, 49, 52, 60, Psalm 22, Psalm 65, Psalm 98. But it did uh, not reveal that the Messiah would actually live in each member of his redeemed church made up mostly of Gentiles. Think about that for a minute. This, by the way, is very incredible news for most of us in this room because as far as I can tell, I don't know that we have any Jews here. So we all be pretty pumped up because guess what? We're the Gentiles. We're the Goyim, Right? That believers, both Jews and Gentiles, are brought together, and now this is the part he's getting into here. Now they possess the surpassing riches of the indwelling Christ is a glorious mystery that uh, was seen all through the New Testament. John 14, Romans 8, Galatians 2, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3. He is in us. He is our hope of glory, and that hope is not the hope like we use it in America. It's a certain hope. It's not a hope so hope, right? Right? He is our guarantee of future glory. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay? So you've got the Holy Spirit of God indwelling you. The part of the Godhead is indwelling you. And there's a sense here that Paul refers to where Christ dwells you. Because he is the one who went away to send the spirit. Okay. So biblical ministry is done not only with a right disposition, joy and suffering, but it's carried out in accordance with the charge that is given, which is to be focused about communicating his truth, his word, complaining the truth of God that can and will change lives to the extent that God himself can indwell a believer as he is redeemed. Now that's not the end of it all. It's just the joy and just the duty. Okay, they're, they're for a purpose. That's number three on your outline. The direction of ministry. That's the purpose of the work of ministry. Disposition, duty, direction. Okay? Look at verse 28. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Now, these verses here are are sermon-worthy verses by themselves. And I've chosen to include them in this just so... We can move through the book a little faster. You're getting a pastor before long, I would hope, and think. And, and you know, that's exciting. I'd like to get as far through Colossians as I can before then. But this is a key, these are key verses here, and verses that I look often to in ministry. Did you see Paul's purpose there, his goal? His desire was for each and every person to see them come to Christ and be presented complete, mature, To edify each one to the maximum po- potential while here on earth. Now think about this in your ministry. You may be a Bible study, small group teacher, you may be a, a music minister, you may think about this. Uh, doing the sound, whatever. Think about this. How can my how can I help present every person complete in Christ? I mean, isn't that a whole different perspective for setting up chairs? Right? You say, well, because there's people who think this way, right? Setting up the chairs ministry, boy, that's not a very good ministry. Boy, I wish I was the lead singer or the preacher or something like that. That's a ministry that impacts or a teacher of some kind. Can I tell you what? All of these things are extremely important. You know what? I couldn't preach for 50 minutes if you didn't have a place to sit in this day and age. There was a day and age, and hopefully... With most of you, you'd probably still stay anyway because of the Word of God. But you know what? There's a lot of folks who they need a place to sit. Some people, it's physically hard for them to stand up too. You know, that's part of the process is how can I help somebody with the, the words to the music, with the, the way that I'm, I'm doing my, whether it be the technology or whatever, that is distraction-free and enhancing as much as possible the reality of, of of, of, of what is going on in the fullness of the ministry here, I mean, there's a, I don't, yeah there 's a bottle of water up here for me. About a month ago, I, was <coughs> I sent my wife off, right? And, and since that time, somebody 's been putting a bottle of water up here you know, because they 're saying, "You know, I want to help edify believers so that they 're not distracted by this guy 's conniption." that 's nice. You see, there's so much, and that's the goal. As we start to look at our ministries as how does this help promote the gospel of Jesus Christ to make disciples, how does that change the way that we do our ministries and our heart for the ministry? You see what I'm saying? And Paul, the goal here is that. It's all about uh, seeing every man complete. Now, he's got a couple of ways here that are really important to that. How did Paul do this? Look at it. He says it. By admonishing, that is warning every man, it's a Greek word which uh, refers to warning about practice. We get our uh, word neusthetic counseling, if you've heard of that, biblical counseling, right? Uh, That comes from that because what it is, is there's somebody in a a hard situation, struggling in some way, and we bring the truth of God to them. Sometimes that, that involves warning. Here's what God's word says about it. It involves correction, training in righteousness, all that kind of stuff, okay? So, he, he says, I, I admonish people. Now, how many of you in this room really love to be admonished? Usually, we like to be admonished about things we're not struggling with, right? I see this as a pastor. People say, well, you really stepped on my toes today. And it's really not something they're struggling with. But it's a, lot of, it's a lot of times, it's like, yeah, I like hearing that. But when their toes are actually stepped on, watch out. It can get ugly. But the, the, that is, it, we're not admonishing or warning based on a response, Oh, I'm going to admonish them because they love that. I'm going to admonish them because that's what God calls me to do, right? That's part of what he calls me to be about. So we admonish every man. That, I would say, is terribly lacking in our politically correct society. We really don't want to get involved in anybody else's life. There's a couple of reasons for that. Number one is they might call us on our own problems. That's why we're supposed to get the log out of our eye before we deal with the speck in somebody else's eye. Uh, the, the, we don't do it, like doing it sometimes because it takes a lot of time. And who has a lot of time? Well, if I invest myself, that's just going to take so much time and that's not my main goal. My main goal is, you know, to retire by 40. Admonishing every man. Folks, I'm not suggesting that we all go out of this place and start calling everybody on their problems. What I am suggesting is this. Let the word of God admonish you first. Let it work on your life. And then when somebody comes to you because they see something that maybe you're blind to or numb to, that you receive it with grace and realize, you know what, they're trying to help me and not assume they're just trying to get after you or something like that. And when you go to somebody, make sure you do it with love and make sure you do it from a place of relationship. It's not the first thing you ever said to them, hey, I'm glad to meet you three weeks later. Whoa, you're a terrible sinner. right? We need the truth, and we need to, a family is, that's what a family is, right? A family is a place where we can talk openly to one another about our hurts and our struggles and things like that. And a church family ought to be like that, too. By the way, you talked a little bit about anonymous stuff here a while ago. Can I just suggest something to you? Unless there's no way you can do it without it being anonymous, just throw that one out the window. I haven't talked to anybody about this, but you know what? Let's, let's open up so we know how to help people with things. Tell us your name. Tell them your name, not us. I'm not involved, but you know, say here's my issue, and here's my struggle, so that people can come alongside and help. And maybe it's a mis- maybe a misunderstanding. That's always the thing with anonymous. Somebody says, "Well, uh, you don't ever do this," and your reason is that. And it's like, well, that's not the reason. I want to explain that to the person, but who do I explain it to? Now it's anonymous, right? And sometimes under anonymous, it's kind of like texting or or something like that. We say things that we wouldn't say face to face to somebody. So. I'm not putting down the anonymous thing that was mentioned earlier at all, and I don't want it to be taken that way, but I would, I would just suggest to you, let's keep an open face like a family and talk to people face-to-face and not be hurt by it. If there's admonishing that you need to do, do it face-to-face out of love and receive it the same way. He does that. Second thing, he teaches every man. And that's complementary to this admonishing thing, teaching about doctrine. It affects the intellect, which that Nusheo word had to do with. Um... We forget sometimes that we're to love God with all our mind too, right? It's not just our feelings, our heart, and all that kind of stuff, but we're to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So you're going and you're teaching every man. You know, a pulpit ministry is a broad proclamation of teaching. A Bible study is a smaller one. When two people are sitting over here in these chairs and talking about the Word of God and working through things, that's teaching as well. With a mom teaching or dad teaching a child, that's teaching. There's so many opportunities to come alongside and teach and help each other. That's discipleship. That's why he keeps saying three times if you noticed it, every man, and every time he says every man in this passage, it's in singular. It's not plural. Singular. So it's very individual, and it's about the process of face-to-face, one-on-one, coming alongside. Admonishing every man, teaching every man. And that's the example of Christ. I mean, don't forget, and again, the the idea of discipling is so integral here because we must, every believer should be discipling somebody, right? We should be discipling somebody. That's the pattern that Jesus Christ gave. He took, he didn't take the masses, he took 12, and even within the 12, he spent more time with three of them, Right? We see that with the apostles in their ministry, they're going around, they're discipling, they're taking people on, you know, a Barnabas with a John Mark and things like that. Matter of fact, as you look through church history, you will see many, many, many examples. If you look at anybody who had an impact, you'll find this: examples of godly men and godly women throughout church history who are discipling. The words we sang again this morning from John Newton was him discipling his little flock in Olney in the UK, coming alongside. So the purpose of our ministry, right, is to see God's li- God change lives more into the likeness of Christ and we have the pleasure of being involved in that and being used by Almighty God to come alongside and help people by teaching, by admonishing, by just discipling. Now, a key thing that you need to remember this and this brings us to our fourth point is do we do this on our own and i hope you understand this already and the answer to that question is no and that's the fourth trait of christian ministry here it's the dynamic of ministry that's the power that's utilized in ministry the dynamic of ministry look at verse 29 he says for this purpose also i labor striving according to his power which works mightily in me there's two things going on there i hope you've noticed them For this purpose, I labor. (laughs) That's a pretty strong word. Striving. He's laboring, he's striving. There's activity, there's input. He's working, right? But what does he say? That's not the whole thing. He says, I I labor and I strive according to what? His power. Which works mightily in me. The word labor there is an athlete's word, you know, used of training. It's used of somebody who worked so hard that they felt like they'd been beaten up, just taking a beating. The word striving there is, I've used it before, uh, about uh, we get our English word agonized from it. It's the one, if you remember, striving towards the finish line, the tape, and stretching out. These two words show Paul's effort as he struggled, expended energy, trying to present every man complete. By the way, this is the pattern throughout history. Luther worked so hard that he fell, literally fell into bed often. Just get near the bed and just, that's it. I'm out. I've used every bit. Nothing left on the field. Moody, his bedtime prayer as he rolled into bed. D.L. Moody. It's going to be a good one. It's going to be a long one. It's going to be uh, just, he's going to be waxing philosophical and theological in his prayer. His bedtime prayer was, God, I'm tired. Amen. That was his prayer. Because he spent it all. He left it all again on the field. Wesley used to ride 60 or 70 miles a day and preach an average of three times a day in his life. Three times a day in his life. I drove, I'll drive 120 miles to do this. In a car. He's not in a car. He's 60 or 70 miles a day. Three times a day he's like, oh, open your Bibles. Let's talk about the Word of God. I don't know where he preached three times a day. You can't even find a church that was... Let's preach three times a day anymore, hardly, unless it's the same sermon over and over. You see, a lot of seminary students are coming out of school today, and we're looking for easy pastors. And, And that's not the picture, and that's not the picture for the lay ministry either. We're not looking for the easy ministry. We're looking to be effectively used by Almighty God to impact our generation, whatever the cost may be, whatever the energy expenditure may end up being. I mean, if you think about it, listen to Paul's testimony from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, are, are they servants of Christ? He was kind of talking about these people who were accusing him, but weren't really putting anything into it. He says, I speak as if insane. He said, I'm far more in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. <clears throat> Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I've spent in the deep. By the way, at this point, what's our world saying to him? Our, our Christianity its saying, maybe God's closing the door for you, Paul shouldn't be there that's just god saying that's not what for you right now no 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 he says i've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers and dangers from my countrymen and dangers from the gentile by the way that's everybody you're either jew or gentile he's in danger from everybody dangers in the city dangers in the wilderness everywhere Dangers on the sea. Oh yeah, we might have forgotten that one, right? Dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Where's your prosperity gospel? Apart from these external things, listen to me, there's also the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Does that sound like an easy ministry? Paul labored. Paul struggled and Paul suffered. But don't miss the balance here. And this is where people get in trouble and they burn out, okay? Paul did it all. All that stuff I just read. To you. He did it according to his, God's, power. That's dunamis, dynamite, right? His power, which works mightily, Paul writes, in me. And that's the balance of Christian living and Christian ministry striving under his power. And I submit to you that Paul's ministerial example is a model for all of us to some degree or another. I mean, his disposition of joy and difficulty, that's one that we can learn from and, and seek to apply by the grace of God, right? His, his focus on his duty to be a, a one who brings the word of God to bear in every situation of life to every man, that's one we can strive towards in our own personal lives and how we deal with things as we deal with ourselves and those around us. His unending commitment to God's direction for the ministry to present every man complete in his healthy ministry dynamic, striving under the power of God. Tell you what, with that kind of philosophy of ministry, folks, the ministry of a pastor or a believer is a glorious thing. You say, well, that's good for you and good for people and professional ministers, but... You know, I work hard, and I don't have anything left for ministry when my day's up. Or, you know, I'm getting old. I'm getting along in years, and it's striving for me to get out of bed in the morning. And I appreciate the honest feeling that's behind both those statements. And believe me, I understand what it's like to work hard and also preach and do things like that. But I'm telling you this, that what God calls you to do, he provides for you to do it. And provides for you to do it well and with joy. And as a a believer in Christ, he has given you a gift to exercise for the purpose of edifying one another in this body here to the glory of God. There was a woman in South Africa. She became a Christian late in life. She was in her 70s. She was blind, she was uneducated, and might have been tempted to go, you know, I can't do much anymore, but thank you, God, for your grace in saving me, right? Out of gratitude to her, Lord who had saved her. She wanted to minister. She understood, hey, I've been gifted, I've been saved, and the reason I'm not dead right now is I, I need to be ministering. She went to her missionary who would let her to the Lord and they got that missionary to underline in her Bible John 3.16 in red ink. It was her idea. And then what she'd do is there was a boy school in the in the community, and they let out in the afternoons, and that, in that boy's school they taught them French. Okay? So she would go and she would sit outside the gate where they come in and out, outside the boy's school, with her Bible, with John 3.16 underlined in red ink. And when a boy would come out, she would say, Hey, do you know French? And the the kid would be very, very proud of themselves for now knowing French and say, yes, I know French, or we, oui, I know French. And uh, when they proudly would say, yes, they do, then she would ask them, could you read this to me out of this French Bible? They'd read it to her. Then she'd say, do you know what that means? Blind, uneducated, and old. Things pretty much devalued in our own society. And that woman led boy after boy to the Lord, many, many to the Lord, including 24 of those boys. 24 of them became pastors and went into vocational ministry because of her work. That's ministry. That, that's, that's ministry from a heart, right? The heart of ministry. That's, that's the kind of ministry, the heart that Paul had. It's said that the African cheetah has to, has to run down its prey to eat, you know. It's, it, 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 what it does is chases, and it chases good because it can run up to 70 miles an hour. It's fast, right? The only problem with the African cheetah is this. It has a disp- disproportionately small heart. So if it does not catch its prey relatively fast, very fast actually, it has to stop because it's out of energy. The heart's not putting enough oxygen back into the bloodstream for 70 miles an hour. I'm afraid that too many of us go into ministry like that, like the African cheetah instead of like that little old lady in Africa. We go into it, and we run into ministry with excitement and all that kind of stuff, but we have small hearts. And we soon abandon the work when it's hard or when it hurts. Our prayer should be, Oh, Lord, enlarge our hearts. Give us a heart like Paul who in the mountains of suffering he faces, which mine is a molehill compared to that, and and against that light, let let me have that kind of heart that rejoices in suffering and presses on towards the goal to see every man complete. The upward call of Christ. God wants to use you. He wants to use every one of you who are in Christ in this body to impact your communities and each other. He wants to do that. I have no doubt at all in saying that. And the, the, the prayer that I have for Cornerstone Bible is that may we be found faithful in that, right? May we be found exuberant in our ministry and rejoicing in it and, and committed to the calling that he's given us and doing it under his power with every ounce of energy that we have to his glory and for the purpose of seeing every man complete. Serving with joy when it's hard, serving with commitment discipling relentlessly but all of it according to his power which works mightily in you John Piper has a little book called Don't Waste Your Life I don't know if you've ever read it or not I recommend it, it's great um, one of the stories he tells is about a, a couple that got to retire early and they moved to Florida and they collected seashells with the last years of their life for years, oh look at the seashells oh I found a new seashell isn't it a beautiful seashell? Lovely collection of seashells. And, and nothing wrong with going, we, we went and got some seashells the other day. But that was their goal. And if you're not into seashells, which I would name myself among you, that would seem silly. And, and Piper says, hey, can you imagine standing before Almighty God to give an account of your stewardship and saying, hey God, yeah, I didn't really have time to disciple. and I didn't really evangelize or do anything like that much anything. I didn't serve in the church. I didn't do any of the things you called me to do. But have you seen my seashells? <laughs> pretty nice. Well, we might, our deal may not be seashells. It might be our golf game. It might be our 401k balance. It might be our prestige at our office. It could be any numbers of things. The reality is this, folks. You've been called as Christians. You've been saved for a purpose. And that is to be a part of this process of presenting every man complete in Christ Jesus. What an awesome, awesome task. What an incredible task. Much better than seashells. Or shooting 74. Let's pour our lives into that task. And as Cornerstone Bible Church, pour your lives into that toward each other and toward this lost and dying world that's outside and let's see what God does and how he impacts lives. Let's let the power of God be shown through the people of God working through his power. What that may mean is there's some ordering of life that needs change. There's things that, you know, that's good, it's not bad, but it's not best. You know what I mean? And a mature believers is not dealing so much with the good and bad questions anymore they're dealing with what's good better and best how do i how do i use my life most effectively to impact my generation like david did in his time or like paul did in his time or like john newton did in his time rather than just marking off our days and making sure we're super comfortable and and then (coughs) dying and going to heaven and going wow thanks saving me that's great and I'm sorry I didn't do what you asked me to do some, most of the time. and being ashamed when he gave you everything that you needed to do. it. What an awesome task. Most people would jump at the chance to be brought into a powerful situation like the president's office or some movie star or somebody famous or something like that and be part of their life and help them out in some way. How silly. In the end, when we have Almighty God, who is above all those people that we name by far, who says, will you be involved in the work? And I've, I've chosen you for this. Go and be about it. Present every man complete. Help this church body to be like that. The guy you call ought to be like that. Help your elders to be like that. And help them help you to be like that. By exercising your gifts that God's given you for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together and we thank you for your word which admonishes us and teaches us. And Lord, we ask that uh, we would not be merely hearers of the word but doers. And as we find what you've given us and helped us to understand by the enlightenment of your spirit and the pre- preservation of the word by your spirit, Lord, we just ask that we would then be um, found faithful in carrying out, laboring, striving according to your great might that you've given us and which is working mildly in us in Christ's name.